good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Once was an unlikely indie movie hit, and from that came an unlikely duo, Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Erglova of The Swell Season. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We return to our visit with The Swell Season and review new albums by the cool kids and sons and daughters. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is supported by Maker's Mark Handcrafted Bourbon. More online at facebook.com slash makersmark. Makers Mark. It is what it isn't. Makers Mark bourbon whiskey distilled in Loretto, Kentucky, reminds listeners to drink responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now to say hello to some new listeners. Yes, Greg, we're excited to have been added by New Hampshire Public Radio. We are now on in the whole state of New Hampshire, one of the birthplaces of the American Revolution. To pay tribute to a new station or a new state that adds us, we like to play some music from their neck of the woods. I argued we have to play the Shags. The Shags were a group of three sisters, Dot, Betty, and Helen, who came together as a band in Fremont, New Hampshire in 1968. They were driven by their father, Austin, in the great tradition of the Jackson Five or the Beach Boys, except the Shags didn't have anywhere near that amount of talent. They have been called both the worst band ever and, quote, better than the Beatles by my hero, Lester Banks. What did Lester mean by that? There was a certain ineptitude and raw primitiveness in the Shags. There would be no moldy peaches, no Kimya Dawson Juno soundtrack without the Shags. They couldn't really play, but they had such joy in making an awesome noise that that is the essence of punk rock. They are now the subject, the Shags, of a uh, off-Broadway play in New York that's been very, very well-reviewed. And soon, believe it or not, they're going to be the subject of a movie by Catherine Dickman starring the uh, Fanning sisters, Elle and Dakota. How about that? That's a long way from the basement in Fremont in 1968. Here is the signature Shags hit from the one and only album, Philosophy of the World, My Pal Footfoot, on Sound Opinions. My pal's name is Footfoot, always likes to name is Footfoot, I never find him home. I go to his house, knock at his door. People come out and say, Footfoot, don't live here no more. My pal Footfoot, Footfoot, always likes to roam. My pal Footfoot, Footfoot, now he has no home. Where will Footfoot go? What will Footfoot do? Oh, Footfoot, I wish I could find you. I've looked here, I've looked there.
That's my pal Foot Foot on Sound Opinions from the Shags. Welcome to our new listeners at NHPR. That is Back to Black by Amy Winehouse, once again topping the UK charts. Big news a few weeks ago, Amy Winehouse died at the age of 27, joining the long list of rock and pop performers who died at that age, going all the way back to Robert Johnson, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, now Amy Winehouse. And sadly, that adage is once again true. Death as a great career move. In the case of Amy Winehouse, she has three albums back in the top ten of the UK charts. Her 2006 breakthrough record, Back to Black, is back at number one, uh, topping Adele, who in fact was inspired by the career resurgence of Amy Winehouse with that soul pop sound that she made famous in the UK and then took overseas. Her debut record, Frank, which she recorded when she was 19, also back in the top ten, and also a compilation record as well. Not to mention the singles, Back to Black, the title song, Back in the top 10, there's four other songs in the top 40 of the UK charts. What a surge for Amy Winehouse. The sad facts are these. She had not effectively recorded any new music since 2006. She had been canceling shows. She had been canceling entire tours. Her career was effectively off the tracks. Now, at her funeral, her father said that she had basically conquered her drug addiction She'd been dealing with the alcohol addiction and that she had been happier than she had been in a long time. She reportedly was working on a jazz album at the time of her death. It remains to be seen whether that material will come out, but a tragic end to the Amy Winehouse story. Nonetheless, her work continues to resonate for millions of fans around the world as these chart successes are showing. So, you want something? You're listening to Sound Opinions, and up next, a return to our conversation with the swell season. Glenn Hansard of the Frames and newcomer Marketa Urglova first rocketed to fame after appearing in the movie Once. Now, that 2007 indie movie showed an unlikely couple bonding over music. We had this 30-ish Irish journeyman singer and a teenage Czech pianist writing songs that chronicled their evolving relationship. Now, was it art imitating life or vice versa? Viewers didn't know, but it was clear that people were falling in love with what would become the band known as the Swell Season. 
You add that to an Oscar win for Best Original Song, and you had the makings of a Hollywood ending, really. The new movie captures that actual reality. We're talking about the Swell Season documentary that debuted at this year's Tribeca Film Festival and chronicles the band's world tour and the end of the relationship between Marquetta and Glenn. Today, the Swell Season continues to record, and Glenn opened for Eddie Vedder's summer tour. The movie will be released this fall, so let's go back to the Swell Season in 2008 right before they won the Oscar. I guess the best place to start is you put out a a terrific record last year that kind of swam under the mainstream radar. Many of those songs ended up in the movie once, and now here you are playing a sold-out tour movie was made for under $200,000, ended up grossing $12 million plus. Glenn, you've been doing this a long time. Where, where's your head at right now? Uh, I must admit, I, I, of course, I'm blown away, and everything has been, everything has been, a, it's been an absolute whirlwind, to be honest. And, and uh, I mean, even, even the Sundance thing was a kind of a skin of our teeth thing. Because, I mean, John sent this film to, he sent it to Toronto, he sent it to, to Sundance, he sent it to a bunch of festivals, and everyone refused it. John Carney, the, the director of the movie. John, the director, yeah. And when, uh, when we showed this film for the first time at a small screening in Galway in Ireland, and afterwards we met this guy and he said it was the first time me and Mar seen the film. We were very proud of it and you know, thanking John outside. And, and John said, that's probably the only time you'll see this on a big screen. Uh, oh, which, you know, which was, we thought was, you know, and we were like, we we're just really glad we saw it. And this man came up and he says, hello, my name is, and his name is John Nine. He said, my name is John Nine. I, I, I'm here on holidays and I work for Sundance and I'd love to take a copy of this film over and possibly, you know, uh, give it to them. And we didn't tell him that we'd already been refused. We were just like, yeah, sure, here, take the, yeah, take the DVD. So he took the DVD and we got accepted into Sundance. And so I have to say that since then, you know, since, since we went over there in January, it's been, I can't believe it's less than a year. It's still less than a year ago that we've been there. And we've been, I guess the amount of kind of work we've done, not necessarily work, but the amount of running around or the amount of how busy we've been since then, feels stop. like yeah. it feels like about three years. Uh, Marquetta, you were um, 17, 18 when this film was being shot. What was that like? being sort of cast into this role as an actress. I mean, you're a classically trained pianist, grew up in the Czech Republic. How did that, you being on this, in front of the camera, how did that feel? Um, I guess it felt unusual for sure. I felt a bit awkward for a few days. You know, whenever there's a camera around, I guess you feel a bit self-conscious in some way. And then after a few days, you just get used to it. And then you forget it's there and you just, you find it much easier to, to just be natural around it. You know, the experience... Making the film was one thing, but it's all of this stuff that's been much more, I guess, life-changing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the coming out and, be, you know, we, we toured, we, we travelled across America in a bus. And uh, one thing that one should never become in life is media savvy. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. I, f- I find myself in a position where I'm actually able to talk and I don't like that. And I have to say that it's kind of right now I definitely need a holiday because <laughs> I want to go back to being innocent where it's like, what? What do you mean? So you're just spouting the sound bites. Well, so. not yeah, and 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 trying to avoid it the right, whole time, right, trying right, right. to get out, tr- constantly trying to. Well, back some track interviewers and get into don't them. make that easy by asking the same darn question over well, and over. There you go. I mean, the main thing I want to know right now is why the heck you got three gaping holes in the middle of your acoustic guitar? I mean, you could probably buy twenty or forty today. <laughs> Haven't been asked you know, that one before. <laughs> <laughs> See, so there we go. So I'll do my part. You do yours. Why the heck you got a guitar that looks like it got run over by a bus, Glenn? Uh, I've just played it a lot. I've played it quite hard, and uh, it, recently we were in Japan. Actually, we were in Japan a few weeks ago, myself and Mar, which was it was another incredible experience. I'm sure. And uh, when we were there, I took up my guitar and we were playing this small concert in a, in a, like a town square. 
and I said, actually, I just realized my guitar is home because my guitar is a Takamine guitar. And I realized it was, you know, because it's a Japanese made guitar. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, my guitar is home. <laughs> and they said, it's funny you should say that because Mr. Takamine himself is here. And they, this man came out on stage, this elderly man, and he had a guitar case and he gave me this brand new guitar. And then afterwards they said, well, the reason they gave it to you is because, you know, they're, they're ashamed of the yeah. fact that you're using <laughs> such a... <laughs> The only part of that guitar that isn't defiled is the headstock that says Takamine. The rest of it really looks like it. we got to put a picture of this on the web. It really looks like it got hit by a hand grenade. I have to say, though, watching Glenn perform the other night with Marquetta, you know, the intensity, even though you may say you're going through the motions a little bit, there was no sense of uh, a guy sort of phoning it in the other night. It seems like you were able to get into that space where you perform those songs in a way that, like, I think this guy's going to blow up and his guitar along with it. And I'm amazed that the guitar is actually still in one piece if you perform those songs at that level uh, every well, night. Well, well, thanks very much. I mean, it, it, definitely in front of an audience, I find it very easy to get out, to go to the moment. I find it very easy to, when, when there's an audience, because members of the public are very, very easy to tune into and very easy to enjoy, you know, whereas what, what I suppose what kind of freaked me out on that tour was that we travelled all over the states we did breakfast shows every morning like we did literally 40 interviews a day it was insane (laughs) and so by the end of it it was kind of like so you've made a film and they point the mic at you and it's like and somehow you know what to do Mm -hmm. and that's what bothers me I think in in life one should always keep a sense of wonder in their life and that's why I'm actually saying this because this is fresh for me (laughs) I need to say this even though it might sound a little bit like oh my god this guy is you know is ungrateful I'm totally grateful I can't believe this has happened I've been in a band for 17 years I've been chipping away and now it's something's happened and it's been like a 17 year overnight success if you like mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and I'm just and I'm acutely aware of the fact that in one year from now once will have been a film that happened a year ago yeah. and I hope that what, what you know having toured and having played our gigs that a small modicum of those of our percentage of those people who came to see us this year and who filled those rooms that's the oddest thing for me is standing in a room full of people and knowing that there's a percentage of people who are just kind of going to see the once people mm-hmm. perform and I guess I'm hoping in my heart of hearts that these people are going to enjoy the music and yeah, so you have to be good every yeah, night and to, stick to around come back. exactly well, why, don't, why don't we have a song would you guys uh, indulge yeah, us yeah sure sure what do you want to do Mar let's do like uh, let's do Falling Slowly let's get us into it <laughs> two three Words 
That was the swell season, performing Falling Slowly for Sound Opinions. There's more of Glenn and Marquetta coming up after a short break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Greg and I review the new albums by The Cool Kids and Sons and Daughters. You must have fallen from the sky.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. You're hearing the song Falling Slowly from the 2007 movie, Once. The two musicians in the film, Glenn Hansard and Marketa Erglova, make up the duo The Swell Season, and we're listening back to their 2008 appearance on the show. Since appearing in the film once, the real-life couple launched a world tour and released a 2009 album called Strict Joy. They also split up romantically, and Marquetta recently got married. But interest in the band's personal and professional lives remain, and there's a new documentary out called The Swell Season that shows what was going on in real life while everybody was watching the fictional life up on the screen in Once. Let's return to our 2008 conversation with Glenn and Marquetta and hear some more about their linking up with Once director John Carney and that Oscar-winning tune, Falling Slowly. John first came to me maybe two and a half years ago with this idea for a film mm. that he had. And he had Killian Murphy playing the main role. And he had asked me to uh, give him some songs. Uh, and so the, the opportunity to write a bunch of songs for a film is just a, it, it's a great gig to get, if you like. i got to inject in here. I mean, you started your career as a teenager yourself, busking on the streets of Dublin. When you're sitting on the street corner playing whatever people you know, want to hear when they throw a few coins in your case, yeah. you know, it probably seems a, a world away to someday write songs for a movie. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. <laughs> absolutely. And especially what, what was especially weird about it was that the character was, to, was maybe 70, 80% based on my own life as mm-hmm. well. Which, 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 when I got the part to play, when I, when I was asked to play that role, really weirded me out, to be honest, because I was like, wow, this is so close to my own. It's like me playing, it's like me doing a biopic of myself, mm-hmm. a third through the story of my life. So it was a very weird thing for me to sort of do. And that's a whole other conversation we could have, I guess, at some point. But so for me, getting the chance to write the songs for this film was, was very exciting. So I went to work straight away. And actually, ironically, I, I finished the song with Mar before either of us were involved in the project. And then gave the song to John. John loved it. And I, to be honest with you, the reason it's on a Frames record and the reason it's on the Swell Season record, the reason the Swell Season record was made at all was basically us recording a collection of songs. Basically, we, we hadn't got the money to make to record the, these songs for John. We had the money to basically home record them, uh, which is fine. You just stick a microphone in front of yourself. So we went to the studio. We had an opportunity to have, we had four paid days in a studio to write two songs for a Czech movie that a friend of ours was making and wanted us to submit two frame songs. So I said to him, okay, if, you, if we have this four, four days in the studio and you want these two songs, we'll record them for you. But if anything else that we do in the studio, can we keep? And he said, sure. <laughs> yeah. so, so our deal was you get the songs for free, we get to keep everything else we record. Yeah. So we, we, we knocked out two frame songs for Jan Trebek, this Czech director, a great director. So we had these recordings for John, a full album of, here it is, John, here's yeah. all their songs for your film. But we didn't think ones would ever come out. So rather than say like, you know, uh, Glenn Hansard, Marquette Aglow, the songs from once, not knowing the film would ever come out, we decided to call it The Swell Season, which was a book we were both reading by Josef Skoretsky, who was a Czech writer. We both loved and we just decided to call ourselves a band name. And then when The Frames were making our album, the lads in the band were like, man, we should really put that song on The Frames record because it's, you know, it's, it's a really good song. And The Swell Season record had sold 300 copies. So I thought, why waste a tune? Put it on The Frames record and, you know, a few extra people are going to buy it. And so, so the irony is that, that those two songs, When Your Mind's Made Up and Falling Slowly, have actually ended up on three albums that mm-hmm. we released this yeah. year, which for me is a little embarrassing. When you consider the headspace we were in when we were putting the, those records together, it actually kind of makes sense. But, you know, the beauty of that song and, and of the movie in general is that the story is told through those songs. I was blown away by the fact that it was complete songs. 
and you're telling the story of these characters. It's like a musical, but it's a cool musical. It's not like these people break out in song in the middle of the street, you know, for no reason. It's like you go into this music store. This relationship is just starting to unfold. You've just met each other. It's a little awkward. You don't even know that she can play piano yet. You see, hey, she's okay. I'm going to, you know, let's, let's play a song. And Marquette is there kind of comping along with you. This is in C, yeah? Yeah, I can see that. So it goes um da goes da 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 Yeah? And then there's a bit in it. Can you can you do that? And about halfway through I was just like I've never seen anything like this in a movie where you can just see this relationship and this couple getting closer through the performance of this song. Yeah. And then the chorus, that's so you have those two bits. Mm-hmm. And the chorus goes da, 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 Marquette, I guess, can I ask you, what stage uh, of the relationship were you in at that point in terms of that song? I mean, it seems so, it literally seemed like you were learning it in the moment. Obviously, that's not the case, but how were you able to sort of get that moment of, oh my God, we're doing something together, and it's this chemistry that's occurring on the screen at that time? Well, I mean, people keep talking about some kind of chemistry that we have together, but, you know, it doesn't mean that we see it. You know, we're not aware of some chemistry when we play together. We just play together and, and have a good time doing it. But we, we don't see any sparks between us, you know. So we just basically did what we did when we were writing the song. And and uh, John caught it on camera and he saw what you saw. It doesn't mean that we see it, if, if that makes sense. We just play music and and what you see is not necessarily what we see. <laughs> I think it's great to have the camera there as sort of a voyeur into that process, though. And I was in a, in a theater with an audience, a very mixed audience. I mean, people from their 20s into their 60s. And everybody was there just with their jaw on the floor by the end of that. It was just like this was a really moving testimonial to how music can create a storyline and get you involved in these characters. And, and, and it's funny with this scene, what it was was that John had seen, when John auditioned Mar, there was no script, there was no script reading, there was no, she didn't audition for him in the traditional sense. She came and played some piano for him. Uh, I got Mara over from Czech and I said, look, my friend John's looking for an actress, he's looking for a girl who plays uh, Eastern European who plays piano and sings. Now that's you. So if you come over to Dublin, I'll introduce you, play him some piano, maybe read him some lines. And Mara came over and, uh, and we, we sat down with John and John had brought his small video camera with him. Uh, I think in order to audition Mar, but I ended up just filming me and Mar playing this song. Mm. And just before we start playing, myself and Mar were like, okay, so uh, first verse and then and then we go into the bridge back. Because, you know, the song was still, you know, I guess we were still figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And John was like, this is great. Whatever di- whatever you're doing here is what I really want to get when we when we shoot it. And when we shoot it, I'd love, to, I'd love you to try to remember where you are now and try to reenact how you put the song together in the first place. And so John's fascination was... 
you know, he says, I love to turn on the TV and see some guy painting a picture. I love, you know, I love, mm. I love what happens as a few lines that then turns into like, suddenly there's some perspective and then he puts a little white strip across the side and suddenly you've yeah. got sunlight hitting something. And he says, I think people are really fascinated by watching others work. Mm. And he says, that would be wonderful to try get that in a film, to try get that moment of just watching people actually work. Yeah. Now, Marquetta, you have a, an interesting role in the film in that you're, you're kind of pushy. You're kind of bringing this guy this kind of sad, lonely guy out of his shell, and you're challenging him a little bit. Obviously, there's been a lot of parallels between what you, what your relationship is like in real life and what this movie's like, but how does that parallel your relationship to Glenn as a songwriting collaborator? Well, I guess we do take that attitude toward each other because we're very close. We don't, you know, we can say things as they are. We don't have to tiptoe around each other, and we can just be straight with each other and, and kind of, and true that we motivate each other and we, you know... I, I, w- I won't say that I, I'm as bossy, you know, if somebody told me I don't want to talk to you, I really don't think I'd still be standing there 10 minutes later. <laughs> One of the first times I met Mar, Mar's father had invited me to go stay at the house because basically myself and Mar's father became friends and he invited me to go stay in the Czech Republic maybe six years ago. And I remember I was sitting up in the room and I was recording something and I knew Mar played piano. So I asked her to come up and would she just basically play some a few a simple lines over the top of something I was doing. And I remember one of the first things she said to me was, this lyric you're singing, did this happen to you? I was like, well, you know, it, it kind of did. You know, it's kind of mm. poetic license. She was like, what do you mean, like, poetic license? I said, well, you know, I'm using metaphor to make my point. And she was like, so this didn't happen to you? And I said, well, no, like, not, ex- not exactly. So this didn't happen in your life? And I said, no. She said, well, why are you singing it? Mm. I remember, like, knowing that moment. that like, man, this girl's, like, straight ahead. I mean, yeah. you know, I've been, in a, a, again, like, a, in my band for years, and nobody... You know, none of the guys really. And actually, sometimes the lads are like, oh, I never knew that lyric. You know, like 15 years later. They, yeah. It's just we're not listening to that part of it, whereas Ma was totally tuned into it. All right. Another song, uh, Marquetta mm-hmm. and Glenn. Should we do once? Yeah. One, two, three. One, two, three. Part of me is Won't return, and part of me wants to hide the part that's to look for you once once but not anymore hear the sirens call me Chip burn. 
talk to you once, once, but that was before, once, once, I would have laid down and died for you, once, once, but not anymore. Sirens call me That was the title song from the Once soundtrack. Glenn Hansard, Marquetta, Erglova, The Swell Season. Great having you guys on Sound Opinions. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like to remind you to share your sound opinions. You want to tell us about a new band you've discovered that you love to pieces, or is there an issue in the music world that's really ticking you off? Let us know at 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, I'll add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. I want to sit you down and talk. I want to pull back the veils and find out what it is I've done wrong. I want to tear these curtains down. I want you to meet me somewhere tonight in this old tourist town. Cause we've got to come up, we've got to come up Low rising Cause there's no further for us to fall Low rising Cause I feel we've had enough Low rising Oh, the love of you
punch up in it. Told you that you could sit with the kids. Computer whiz, still can't figure it out though. Got endo, got outdo yeah. with cleaner clothes, cream rolls. Nissan Patrol with the bow stereo. Yo, I dug holes trying to grow my seeds. I got plugged like the back of the screen, man. You got designs on the back of your jeans. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that is a track called Bundle Up from the debut album from the Cool Kids When Fish Ride Bicycles. Long time in coming, this debut album. It had been promised for a number of years. This Chicago hip-hop duo, Antoine, Mikey Rocks, Reed, and Evan, Chuck English, Ingersoll, had been the talk of the Internet in uh, 2007-08. MySpace, remember MySpace? They were unloading a lot of music on that website. Had a number of significant Internet hits, 88, Black Mags, Golden, A Pager, making a lot of noise, not only with the digital singles, the mixtapes they were putting out for free, but also a very dynamic live show. Call and response, tag team, hip-hop vocals, very much drawing on that golden age of hip-hop in the 80s. That was the influence, and they were proud of it. When they talk about 88, they're talking about 1988. They're talking about when hip-hop was at its best, in their opinion, and they were bringing back some of that old-school flavor. People loved it. The bake sale came out as an EP in 2008. The album was supposed to follow a year later, but they got into a lot of conflicts with their record label at the time. They've since switched labels. They are now being distributed by a soft drink manufacturer, kind of an interesting new industry model that they're creating here. And the debut is finally out. We're going to play a track from When Fish Ride Bicycles, and then we're going to come back and review it. It's Penny Hardaway from The Cool Kids on Sound Opinions. The Valley Loafers and the Cartiers. What's up? I do my thing, Penny Hardaway. And if you know where we're going, then you probably going to be coming with us. Loafers in the Cartier. What's up? I do my thing, Penny Hardaway. And if you know where we're going, then you probably gonna be coming with us. Yeah. Friday night nice, Saturday sharp. Edge up on the hairline, side tapered and poor. Sunday went in the linen short set from the mall. Pieces out the dry cleaning, stitch seamless and all. That glitters ain't gold, but this is cars hopping in them. Mars bike edition in the palace like the pistons. Peep the way I flipped it. The color on this one is like the mother ones, but these colors complement it. You might wanna catch that later, alligator. Moria had another colorway before they made it. Coreless phones on them like it's free activation for them. Homie, you would have had to been alive for it. Championship rings, rap belts, and jean fabrics. It seems we swing poles for these ropes like tennis rackets, tennis bracelet, Andre Agassi, tennis shoes, and jackets, Cartier frames, and ballets. The Valley Loafers and the Cartiers. What's up? I do my thing, Penny Hardaway. And if you know where we're going, then you probably gonna be coming with us. That is The Cool Kids with a track called Penny Hardaway from their long awaited debut album, When Fish Ride Bicycles. Greg, I think that people are disappointed that it took so long for the cool kids to actually give us a full-length album, and and that disappointment is spilling over into some of the reviews I've seen, because this album struck me as a wonderful summer treat. 
I've seen the cool kids refer to it as beach rap or summer hip hop. It is party music, you know, and it is party music in a sort of uplifting way that doesn't put other people down. They're talking about girls. They're talking about cars. They're talking about wishing they could have some of that expensive stuff, but not in that obnoxious hip-hop materialistic way uh you know and that song that we bumped in with bundle up i mean they're rapping kind of with, with a lot of humor about how freaking cold it is in mm. chicago in the winter they have two or three other songs on this album that's uh, about how hot it is in chicago in the summer i think they're very talented as lyricists but not in a showy way it kind of sneaks up on you she wanted me to beg but i beg your pardon i'm park place you're marvin gardens all right lines mm. like that just kind of tossed out They're not reinventing the wheel. They don't claim to be. They're not going to win prizes for originality, but they make me really happy on this album. And I got to give it on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, an enthusiastic buy it. Well, I was very excited about this group uh, when they first came out. I thought they were a breath of fresh air. There, there was no one else that sounded quite like them. I like the fact that they were talking about their everyday lives. This is kind of a, a, a longstanding Chicago tradition, by the way, in, in terms of hip-hop, sort of an almost a blue-collar, lunch-pail approach to subject matter. You know, Real I'm people. Not, yeah, I'm not going to talk about gangbanging. If I'm not a gangbanger, I'm going to talk about my everyday life, you know, and the fact that, you know, I really like hip-hop from 1988, and I'm still walking around with a pager because I can't afford a fancy cell phone, you know, (laughs) those kind of things. So you have this very down-to-earth combination. You also have a very self-contained production team. Ingersoll does a lot of their production in addition to being half of of the duo. I love all of that about it. But I think the delay took some juice out of it. I also think, though, more significantly, they brought in a lot of these guest artists into the, into the fray here. So you've got Bun B and Meyer Hawthorne and Travis Barker all, you know, guesting on this record. You've got Pharrell Williams basically taking over a couple of tracks. They sound like nerd outtakes. They don't really sound like Cool Kids tracks. And I think these guys are so self-effacing sometimes that they get lost in it. They, they are not, as you said, boisterous personalities. They're kind of deadpan. They're kind of clever, very funny, but you really have to sort of pay attention. And I, I really think next time, clear out the clutter, guys. Don't worry about the guest stars. Just do your thing. Go back to that sound that you had on the Bake Sale EP, and it'll be a much better record. As it is, I've got to give it a burn it rating. a track called Don't Look Now from the new Sons and Daughters album Mirror Mirror. It's the fourth studio album from this Scottish quartet. They'd been bumping around the uh, Glasgow scene in the early 2000s playing in various bands when the four of them got together. They were coming out of that scene that had produced Bell and Sebastian and Camera Obscura, but they sounded nothing like those kind of more fey folk rock bands. Sons and Daughters was more inspired by a rougher-hewn American sound, as evidenced by an early EP that recorded a tribute to uh, Johnny Cash early in their career. And that sound has kind of stayed with them over the years. It's evolved. They produced a much more lush-sounding record in 2008 called This Gift with producer Bernard Butler. 
Now they're back with a more stripped-down offering called Mirror Mirror. We're going to review it in a second, but let's play a track from it first. It's called Rose Red from Sons and Daughters on Sound Opinions. Rose Red from Sons and Daughters from album number four, Mirror, Mirror, on Sound Opinions. You know, Greg, like a lot of the bands on the very fine UK label Domino, I thought Sons and Daughters was in that group that had a really good sound, and after one or two albums, you were kind of tired of it. They, they were sort of played out. As you said earlier, this was Americana roots punk, but delivered with the English perspective, a little bit of Nick Cave thrown in, and a lot of X, especially in terms of Scott Patterson and Adele Bethel trading off on the vocals. Here, they go for a much more rooted, Celtic, witchy, dark gothic vibe. In part, it's some synthesizers that are brought in somewhere between suicide and Salem, (laughs) you Mm. know, that dark, burbling, gurgling synthesizer sound. But also there's just a mood shift, and and I really like it. It shows a new side of the band. It has revived my interest in Sons and Daughters. I gotta say on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, it's a Buy It record. Well, I do agree with you, Jim. I think this, this is a terrific band, and yes, they have perhaps overstayed what many people thought would be a short career with a very defined sound. I love how they've grown over the years. This album, I think, really highlights an aspect of the band that has been somewhat underrated. 
you know, with good reason, people have focused on those duet vocals between Bethel and Patterson. But the rhythm section on, on this record, I think, is outstanding. Uh, bassist Alid Lennon and drummer David Gao, I think, are the real highlights on this record. Yeah, he, he's a monster, that drummer. The grooves here are fantastic. The guitar's a little dialed back, synthesizers up in a kind of a, a corrupt way. It's it, They're not using it in a traditional <laughs> manner. It is all sorts of creepy little sonic details in this, this record. evil record. They really yeah. draw me in. I really think this is one of the strongest bands of the last decade, and it's about time people started paying attention to them here in America. Mirror, Mirror, Sons and Daughters, a buy it record all the way for me. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. We've rented the cruise ship for the deserted island. We have one record to play. Jim DeRigatis, what's it going to be? Thank you, Greg. You know, we were on a brief hiatus when Amy Winehouse died, but I've been thinking about her, obviously, since that news broke, and thinking about her roots. It was very clear that she was taking bits and pieces from throughout pop and rock history. There was a heck of a lot of Ronnie Spector in that woman. But the bridge, the real bridge between what Ronnie Spector did in the 60s and what Amy Winehouse was doing in the new millennium was a British artist named Mary Wilson, M-A-R-I. I don't know if you remember her. She was huge in the U.K., pretty much ignored in the U.S., had a big string of hits in the 80s where she very consciously went back to an earlier era. She was the first beehive revivalist, okay? Amy Winehouse took that hairdo lock, stock, and barrel from Mary Wilson, who, of course, took it from countless girl groups in the 60s. Mary Wilson was was partly jazz, partly pop, and partly in that uniquely British way, tongue-in-cheek camp. There was a lot of silliness. She knew that the songs she was covering and that the other material she was recording, that her get-up were all kind of silly, and that she was standing out, that it was an act, in a way that perhaps Winehouse really didn't. At the same time, though, she had an incredible voice, a really great instrument. I'm going to play a song from her 2005 attempted comeback. She's had a lot of health problems. The 80s were her decade. She's tried to come back several times since. This was one of those comeback attempts. The voice was still there. It was just that she couldn't tour, and she's not feeling well enough to really be out there and be a star as she once was. This is a song called Running on Sand by Mary Wilson from Dolled Up on Sound Opinions. Song. 
that was Mary Wilson with Running on Sand, my Desert Island Jukebox pick. The Sound Opinion's Desert Island Jukebox is brought to you by Maker's Mark Bourbon. Maker's Mark, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from the long-running indie duo Damon and Naomi. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with Annie Minoff. Our intern is Kobe Ashpes, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, who himself has been known to sport a beehive. I was sleeping gently, napping when I heard the phone Who is on the other end talking? Am I even home? On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Jason from Los Angeles. I was riding my bike listening to your podcast, and I had to pull over and whip out my phone to respond to something that you guys said. At the top of your Bob Mould episode, you were talking about Trent Reznor's tweet about how not to buy the reissue Pretty Hate Machine. Now, I agree with Trent that if a label controls his material and is putting out his music uh, in ways that he doesn't like or disagrees with, he has every right to suggest that fans not buy it. But where you lose me is where you start talking about U2 and Nirvana groaning, and I can hear you rolling your eyes about them putting up these deluxe reissues uh, and saying that fans are suckers and using the word capitalist like it's a swear word. Come on, guys. When you're putting out nice packaging or uh, you know, extra tracks or extra context for the fans, there's nothing wrong with that. That's something that fans value and are willing to spend money on. You know, there's, like, that's, that's the rules of the game. That's capitalism. If you create a superior product that people want and will pay for, you win. So don't moan about the loss of borders and in the same breath roll your eyes about you know, U2's manager putting out a box set. Do a quick reality check and don't just go on tropes of physical retailers dying off is bad and big companies making money is bad. Just Think about it for a second and get with the program. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hello, guys. My name is Morris Pushtinsky. I'm calling from Melbourne, Australia. I particularly enjoyed your latest episode, your favourite duets, and I thought I might make a contribution. This is actually from uh, an Australian band called Weddings, Parties, Anything, who reached moderate success, although they should have been much greater. But they had a great song on their fourth album, Difficult Love, a song called Step In, Step Out, which was a moderate hit here in Australia. And it was a duet between the lead singer, Mick Thomas, and uh, ex-lead singer of a band from the 90s in Australia called The Cloud. The song was a dialogue between these two people, a married couple, who were trying to make their marriage work despite the fact that they both did shift work. It's a bit of a heartbreaking song with a gorgeous melody and a wonderful lyric. Thanks very much. We can't find the time for talking. Seems we find the time to lose. Oh, hello, guys. Scott from Austin, Texas. I'm finally recuperating from your duet show. Uh, those songs mainly suck and fall far short of my two nominations. You're the boss. 
by Elvis Presley and Anne Margaret, and My Mistake by Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross. Dynamic between a couple is the theme, as I recall. I've given you two primo examples. Thanks for great shows, guys. Hey guys, this is Tanya from Oak Park, Illinois. Just listened to your show on duets, hoping the whole time that you would name my favorite duet from the 90s and you hit it on the head with Wu-Tang Clan and Mary J. Blige, All I Need. That song defined the 90s, my love of hip-hop and rap in the 90s, and the year that I met my future husband. It was just awesome to have you name that song. So thank you so much. Love the show. Really appreciate it. Well, you must spend my time. I'll dedicate my life. I'll sacrifice to you. Dedicate my life to you. I gotta love Jones for your body and your skin tone. Five minutes alone, I'm already on the phone. Plus, I love the fact you got a mind of your own. No need to shop around. You got the good stuff at home. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.